Turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts 22. Let me read from verse 21 to chapter 23, um, 11. I'll read to 11. 22, 21, God's holy word. Christ said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to the statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, What are you about to do, for this man is a Roman? The commander came to him and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he answered, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him, and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble, and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brothers, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heartedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. 
But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Let's pray. Lord God, you alone are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we adore you, Almighty God. By the great grace that you have given us, you have granted us repentance to hate our sin and to turn from it and bring it to you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your holy cleansing. You've given us faith, Holy Spirit, to see our great need of you, Jesus Christ, and to embrace you, Jesus, Lamb of God, who washes all of our sins away. Help us, gracious God, acknowledge that we are always in your presence, you're always with us, Your government rules over all, including us, even the days of difficulty and even when we approach death. You never leave us and you govern everything to your glory, even for the good of your people. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is the third sermon that I wrote for this sermon. I... I had full sermons written for this, and I threw them in the trash. I almost never do that, um, but I did. There were, there, there's so, we've, we've seen this before. Um, since this is a historical narrative, the entire book, it's about the advance of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the advance of the gospel going from the Jews to the Gentiles. That's what the book is about. And so given the way that this book is written, Oftentimes, within the preaching portion that I choose, there are a number of doctrines uh, that we could look at, a number of teachings within that passage that we could either look at a, a number of them generally and then perhaps minimally, or we could focus in on them, which is generally what I like to do. I like to take something and un- peel it like an onion. And so, in this passage, I may come back to this passage again. There's a lot here. But for my purposes, I want to look at one main thing in two subdivisions of that main thing. Uh, Whatever I sent you for the sermon earlier in the week isn't, isn't, it's not this. Um, What I want to consider first from this passage is I want to look at the preservation of the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, that's Paul. But the applications to all of us as believers that God preserves his people according to his wisdom and his own, his, his own divine decree, which we see working out in time. He preserves his people from both harm and uh, from death. And generally, God will preserve his people, and particularly this person, because he has more work for us to do. And so when you think of God preserving our life, it is primarily not for the acquisition of things, primarily for the benefit of relationships, that we would glorify God with other human beings. All of the things that we acquire, houses and cars and those kind of things, lawful things, they're destined for the fire. The only thing that is eternal are our people, our souls. And so what, what we see here is God is preserving his gospel servant, Paul, because he has more work for Paul to do. And the work is not building things, as I say. It's proclaiming the gospel 
that men and women would be brought out from their sin and built up in Christ, or if they're in Christ, that they would be further built up in Christ. So God preserves us according to his timing and wisdom that we would pour our lives into the lives of other people, but it's a gospel witness, both in precept and in practice, that we can say the truth of the Bible and then we can live a holy life, that we would bless other people um, in Christ Jesus. So we have the preservation of the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then related to that, maybe a subdivision of these things, we're going to look at the sovereign government of God. We talk about providence. Providence is another word for government. That's what we're looking at. So the main idea is the government of God is protecting and preserving the Apostle Paul, us, as God's people. And the other thing that we're going to see, which sometimes Calvinists are accused of not believing in, which is why we read from the, the, the secondary standard, is we're going to see the, the sovereign providence of, of God, and then we're going to see the graced wisdom of the servant. So the master is governing our lives, preserving our lives, and then we see at the very same time, the Apostle Paul is going to use graced wisdom to preserve his own life. So for us as Reformed Christians, because we believe the sovereign government of God, that doesn't mean we just sit in a chair and we're not active in the Christian life. The Christian life is very active. So we're going to see Paul using wisdom, using his civil or secular privileges to preserve his life, to keep the Romans from, uh, from uh, interrogating him to death with a, uh, with a uh, scourge. And then you, you see him use graced wisdom by introducing a theological difference among the Pharisees and the Sadducees to preserve his life. And remember, for the preservation of Paul's life, it's always that he would continue proclaiming Christ. And Christ says as much at the very end. I'm preserving you now because I have more people for you to tell about Jesus Christ. This is Paul specifically, but when you apply it to yourself, the reason we're still alive is because God still has work for us. And the work is not primarily the acquisition of things. It's that we would pour out our lives into the life of another human being, all for the glory of Christ, whether it's a husband or a wife or a son, a daughter, grandson, granddaughter, mom, dad, a co-worker, an enemy, that we would glorify Jesus Christ before them. That, that's what's going on. So the sovereign government of God, the graced wisdom of God's servant. Then another thing, again, we're just kind of, kind of flying over this large passage. We'll see that God's servant, Paul, will be ex- examined in two venues, as it were, or among two audiences. He'll be examined by the Jews, and he'll be examined by the Gentiles. So he actually goes from the Jews to the Gentiles, back to the Jews, back to the Gentiles. But what's significant about this is part of this examination by Jew and Gentile is meant to show, I'll use the word, um, the identification of Christ's people with Christ or the solidarity of Christ's people with Christ, the oneness. This is the John chapter 17, that we would be one. This is the idea of uh, owner, Christ owns us and we own him. What do I mean by that? It's just this. When you look at the life of Paul, and this is going to be true for us, though not as market, I understand. Think of it this way. The, apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ himself was examined by the Jews and then he was examined by the Gentiles. 
the Apostle Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, will be examined by the Jews, and then he's going to be examined by the Gentiles. This is the solidarity part. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself was forsaken and hated and abused by the Jews, and the same thing is true of the Gentiles. The same thing is true of the Apostle Paul. Paul, under the government of the Lord Jesus Christ, will be forsaken by the Jews, hated by the Jews, his fellow Jews, and they'll hand him over to, be, to the Romans to be killed in, in a similar way with Christ. The notion is, as we're looking at this idea of God governing our lives as Christians, God govern, governs everything in the life of his elect person to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ, to conform us into the image of Jesus. This is the Romans chapter 8. And to make us one with Christ, practically, this idea, this solidarity, the identification of us with Christ and Christ um, with, with us. And then ultimately, God will govern everything in the life of a believer, not only to bring us to Christ the first time savingly, but to bring us to Christ uh, home. That's what's going on. So we have the, the, the sovereign preservation of God's servants, which is the providence of God. In that, we see that God uses graced wisdom, that we are active in this business. And then we see the venues in which God places his gospel servant to the Jews and to the Gentiles and our uh, identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to start with this notion of God's sovereign government or sovereign providence. And I know sometimes maybe reform people like that word sovereign, sovereign or sovereignty um, and you hear it more in Reformed churches than, say, a broad evangelical or an Arminian uh, church. To the extent that we can grasp sovereign government or sovereign providence, and when I say sovereign, I just mean it's an expression of his lordship, that he is lord over all. There's nothing impossible for our God except to deny himself, which is a philosophical conundrum. He can't. But th- there, is, there is nothing uh, which he is unable to, uh, to do. So when we look at the government of God, it's the universal or the complete government of God. To the extent that we can grasp this, and I'm going to say right now that I can't, I can't reconcile certain things, but we wanna, when we're looking at the preservation of Paul for the purpose of orchestrating everything for the ultimate pur- pur- purpose of having Paul witness the gospel before Rome, Um, God's governing all of that. He's superintending all of it. To the extent that we can grasp what we can grasp, it will help us understand this passage. If we can't, if we deny the sovereign government of God, what I'm going to say for the rest of the sermon won't make any sense. What do I mean by that? The Bible tells us that God created everything. In everything that God created, God governs, which means he he governs everything. And the government of God, like, the, like God, is perfect. We talk about his holy, his wise, his powerful, his preserving, perfect government. Again, when we look at how things are shaking out, which God is governing, it doesn't look exactly that holy and that perfect and that, that wonderful, but it is. So we start with what the Bible says. God created all, God governs all that he's created, and the Bible tells us that it is a holy H-O, and then he governs everything holy, uh, W-H-O. And therefore, when we're talking about the government of God, 
it extends even to us as his people. And so when, um, when we are being abused, for Christ's sake, in this case, God governs it. When God preserves our life under the abuse, and then God emancipates us or liberates us from the abuse, it's all under the government of God. A classic proof text for God ordaining everything, again, very mysterious. What does David say in the Psalms? These things are too wonderful for us, but we're just going to acknowledge that God's government is universal, including us, and our children, our grandchildren, everything. Ex Ephesians 1.11 Also we have obtained an inheritance, this is the word of God, having predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Everything is ordained by God. Even sin. God's never the author of sin. James 1.13. We cannot reconcile that. But the Bible says clearly that he ordains all things and governs all things according to the free counsel of his will. And what's the response of that? We, we fall down before him. This is the lordship of the Lord, that God governs everything. The Apostle Paul, me, you, everything. The day of our birth, everything from the day of our birth to the day of our death, God has ordained the day that we will die, God has ordained the way that we will die, and everything in between. But remember, it's to bring the elect to Christ, to build us up into, into the image of Christ, and then li to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, which is pouring out Christ into the life of other people. Another place that shows the utter sovereign government of God is Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus tells his disciples that a sparrow doesn't even fall to the ground apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, one hair does not fall from your head but by the will of your God the will of your Father. God is governing even our, our hair. He takes the lesser and he applies it to the greater and he says, this is the government of God. I want to read, I want to read a summary of how our religious forefathers understood this doctrine of providence or government of God. Because this is what we see in the life of Paul. What are the works of providence? And this is the answer from our larger catechism. God's works of providence are his most holy. You can literally, the theologians talk about the simplicity of God. You can't subdivide God. God is not a sum of parts. God is 100% love, 100% holiness, 100% goodness. I, again, but you can almost take the word holy and stamp it over every other attribute of God. His love is holy, his mercy is holy, his wisdom is holy. It's spotless, it's pure. He, his government is wise, his government is powerful, preserving. That's why Paul was not killed by the Jews or by the Romans, because God, in, in this occasion, because God preserved him until it was the time, and governs all his creatures, ordering them, all their actions, to his own glory. That's what we see in this passage. That's exactly what we see. Now, when we look at the government of God extending to all things, 
Everything that occurs in our life as a believer is under the government of God. God governs the pleasures in our life. God governs the pain in our life. God governs everything. Now, you may say to me, and I may say to me, what about the painful things in my life? What about those things? There are some things, usually that we, you know them right now. You know them right now. Those painful things that most of us have, that immediately we say, how is that? How does he govern that? I revert back to these things are too wonderful for me. The ways of God are not our ways. They're infinitely high. And, and we will have to wait for the answer of those perplexing things until we're in the eternal estate. And until that time, it, it will have to be sufficient for us, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, to know in part. We know in part. So we start with a clear, God governs everything. Now remember the God who's governing everything for us as believers is a reconciled God. So that means he's a good God. And I don't mean to use Romans 8.28 tritely. I really don't. But God's plans for his people, his people in Christ, are always good. I'm not saying that they're always painless. They're not. But they're always good. Remember the, the goal the goal for the life of the child of God is, is not to live long or to be healthier, wealthier, even externally happy. The goal of our life is to be brought to Christ, to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, to live for Christ, and then to go be with Christ. Those things are all being orchestrated by our sovereign God. And to the extent that we could suspend the perplexing things and wait to have those things answered in eternity because I'm sure the problem will no longer exist the moment we go home. To the extent that we can acknowledge that our God governs everything in our lives, the lives of our sons, our daughters, our grandchildren, the lot, everyone, our parents, everyone, everything, is under the government of our God. And, if we, and here's the thing. If we could believe it, what, what, what is this? All unbelief is belief in a lie. The reason so many of us, including myself, are so anxious and so distraught and beat up, we don't believe. We're not walking by faith. I'm not walking by faith. I'm not walking by faith. And so the reason we're so anxious when we say God governs everything according to the counsel of his own glorious will, yes. If we could live what I prayed, quorum Deo, before the face of God, if we could do, practice the, the, the presence of Jesus, because we're always in the presence of Christ, this causes us to, this whole idea of looking at the providence of God calls us and excites us to live constantly by faith. To live, a, to, to live with continuous thoughts of God. God has brought me here. God has done this. God is orchestrating. And then to have this continuous conversation with God. God, thank you for this. God, please for that. That's what Paul says, pray, pray without ceasing. 
we would live, if we could do this, if we could acknowledge the sovereign government of God over our lives, for good, for His glory and our good, if we could, we would live far less anxious and fearful lives. We would. We would be afraid less. Most of us are afraid of a lot of things. And we would be distracted far less for sinful things. And we would live more joyful and courageous lives in productive lives if we could rest knowing our God is in control of everything. The second thing that we see thematically from what we're looking at is we've said that God is governing Paul. God's governing us. He governs everything. Look at where Paul is. In chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23, primarily, not exclusively, primarily Paul has been doing his gospel labors because he's a gospel-er among the Jews. Who has sent Paul into harm's way? (laughs) God's government extends to all things, and the next point we learn in this is that God will send, sometimes, according to his wise government, he will send his beloved sons and daughters into harm's way. This is one of the things which I... I love about God, but I'm still before God. If you're a, a, a father or a mother, you'll know this. Let's just say you know intellectually and biblically that your child, your grandchild, something very painful. This is a Hebrews 12. But you yourself could never do it. I, I could not do it. I can't. I hated when my children were little to even give the little bit of corporal punishment we did. I didn't. But our God loves us and our children infinitely more than we love ourselves and we love our children. And our God, sometimes in his wisdom, will send his children, whom he loves, into harm's way. Beloved, what do you think about that? Jesus Christ said, let's just apply it to the gospel servant. Jesus Christ said concerning his gospel servants, his shepherds, Paul, us, I am sending you out as lambs to among wolves. That's this. So who sent Paul here? Remember the Holy Spirit told the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21, everywhere I send you, you know what you're going into? Harm. Opposition. The Holy Spirit informs a fellow by the name of Agabus. And Agabus tells him, the Holy Spirit has told me to tell you that when you go to Jerusalem to give the gospel to the Jews, they will be the source of your binding and you're arresting, and then ultimately it will give way to your death. That This is exactly what's happened. It proves our first statement that God governs everything. And now it proves our second statement that Jesus sometimes in God's wisdom it is the will of Almighty God that he sends us as his children into harm's way. In this case, he's a gospeler. He's a preacher. 
So it is the will of the Lord Jesus Christ to send his gospel preacher to wolves. We would never do that. We would never do that. We would only talk to people that are nice and that are kind, that are gentle, all of this. But that's not the will of Christ. The will of Christ is to send his shepherd out like a lamb to be slaughtered. Why? Because he's going to convert some of those wolves. Remember the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16? He sent him to a jailer that put him in a stock that gave beatings because it was the purpose of Christ to save the wolf, to save the jailer, to save the unbeliever through the ministry of the believer. I said it earlier. It's, sometimes it is the will of our Christ to send us as his children into very difficult times. He puts us in the furnace. Our Christ puts us into the furnace, but it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Just the opposite. Everything, 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 everything in the life of the believer, remember, remember, brings us to Christ, conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ, makes us serviceable to Jesus. Why does God put you in the crucible? Remember what we said at the beginning. Our life is to give Christ away to other people. It's not the acquisition of things. It's to glorify Jesus in precept and practice to people. If you have a wife and you're a husband, you're to love her like Christ loves the church. Pour Christ into her life. The same for the, the wife to the husband, for us as moms and dads to our kids, to pour Christ into them. Why does God put you in the crucible? Because there are people in the crucible that you're going to pour Christ into their lives. And they may be the ones inflicting the damage. It will work either to the mercy of God and he converts them or to the justice of God and that's his business on the last day. But when God brings his gospel servant into harm's way, it does not mean that he doesn't love us. God, God never takes away his love from you in Christ Jesus. And the other thing that we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, God governs everything. He governs everything, including bringing us into harm in what we see with Paul is he preserves us in the harm. He sets limits to the amount of abuse that can be um, uh, 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 upon his servant, Paul. And what do I mean by that? Again, I've referenced chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23. This is Paul before a group of Jews, and then the Romans going to save him. He goes before the Sanhedrin, and he's going to save him again. The Apostle Paul has been busy telling his brother and sister Jews, and he, he means just uh, ethnically or culturally, uh, and to some extent prior religiously. And he, he's busy telling them that believing in, that Jesus is the Christ is not antithetical to the Bible, that Jesus fulfills the law of God, both negatively and positively. Jesus pays for all of the, the sins of the, for, the, for the breach of the law. He dies, substitutionary as a substitutionary atonement. And then he carries out the positive duties. Again, this is a Romans 5, for his people. He says, everything's according to the law of Moses. Here he is, the Lamb of God. And the Jews are listening to the, uh, the Apostle Paul as he's preaching Jesus to them. That's the purpose. So for the, for the, for the preacher of Jesus, that person, that, that man exists to give Christ away in the, in, the, in, in the way that God has called him to. 
Paul preaches up to a point, and the Jews are listening, 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 and then he says one thing, and they cannot listen anymore. And what's the one thing that he says? And they say, we're, we're done. What's the one thing? The risen Lord Jesus Christ, he tells the Jews, Christ told me. Beloved, the Christ that we serve, this is not... The Christian faith is a supernatural faith. We worship one God who is triune, three divine persons and one divine Godhead. It is, it is relational. This God who is governing us is real. This isn't just propositional truth. This isn't just theory. We are in a real relationship with a real person, a real God. He says Jesus is alive. We don't follow a dead prophet Jesus is alive, is what he told the Jews. So far, so good, until he said this. The risen Christ, the Messiah, said, the Jews will not listen to you about me, so I'm sending you to what people? Gentiles. And that was it. That was it. Beloved, never underestimate the power of man's hatred for their fellow man. What do I mean by that? Here are the Jews saying, we're the people of God. 1 John chapter 4, God is what? Go ahead, finish the sentence. God is love. And for the people that love their fellow man, they prove that they are recipients of the love of God and the Christ of God. If you don't love your fellow man, that you don't know the love of God. This is 1 John 3 and 1 John chapter 4. John chapter 13, 14 and 15. And the Jews say, we hate the Gentiles so much, we are going to murder you. Beloved, what's inside of us will come out. If you do not love your fellow man, you cannot know the God of love. You cannot know the God of love. This is John's whole argument. That when we love other people who are unlovely as we were unlovely and are constantly unlovely, It's this this amazing Christ, this amazing God. And they say, we're going to kill you. And they try to kill him again. And this is where the sovereign government of God comes back in, or we at least see it. Can they kill Paul right now? He has three more years to live. Can they kill him now? They cannot kill him. God sets a limit. God allows the Jews to beat and abuse Paul, but he puts a limit on it. You can't kill him. You say, well, where do you get this? They're right here. They wanted to kill him, but they can't kill him. Remember, Satan tells God, Job, your righteous servant, will curse you to your face, God, if you do three things. You take all his wealth, you take all his health, and then you take his children. And what does God say? I am going to allow you, devil, to strike those three areas But I forbid you, and I set a limit on one area. You can take away his wealth, his health, and his children. You can't take away his life. That's the government of God. That's the government of God. The Lord Jesus Christ says the same thing of the Apostle Peter. He says to Peter, after Peter makes this sinful, silly boast, he thinks he's stronger than he is, faith-wise, He says, Peter, Satan asked permission, as Christ is God, 
to sift you like what? Wheat. To abuse you, Peter. For us moms and dads, we would never let our kids be abused. I would never let my son be abused or my daughter. I couldn't do it. Even if I knew the, the abuse would be good for them. I couldn't do it. But our God does it. Because it's good for us. He says to the devil, you can do this to Peter. But he puts a limit on him. He does the very same thing. It was George Whitfield that said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Beloved, there's a day appointed for everybody in this room. And there's a way appointed for everybody in this room for us to go home, to be with God in heaven. Even the devil cannot take your life from you until that day. No enemy, no weapon before the time of God can take your life from you. No one can do more to you than God allows. No one. Because of that, it's just, when you think of it, 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 far from like, well, I'm just going to go live like silly. No, it it doesn't do that. When we think, wait a minute, I will die on the day and on the way that my God has ordained for me. That you, O man, cannot take my life or the life of my wife or my child, my son, my daughter. You cannot do it, Satan. You cannot do it, man. God governs all of this. I'll die the day and the way that my God wants me to. Beloved, this is for, this is for our instruction that we would live more courageous lives. More joyful lives, less fearful. Um, that's what's going on. So God governs. He governs us, sending us into harm's way. He preserves us in harm's way. And we see him preserving the life of his gospel servant two ways. He, he preserves by the restraining that we've talked about. And then he, he preserves by the rescuing. And this brings us to another aspect of the government of God over our lives, which again is mind-blowing. The Jews want to kill him, but they can't kill him. And one of the ways that they can't kill Paul is because he's rescued by a Gentile. Now, Isaiah 55, I think it's 8 and 9, it says, God's ways are not our ways. Who would have thought that the Jews would try to kill their fellow Jew and that God would have a Gentile preserve a Jew from being murdered by Jews? God did it. God did it. People sometimes say, my people, like the color of me, my color with a Boston accent, my people. Oh, boy. If you live, what kind of people are going to end up hurting you? If you walked around at 12 o'clock at night, what kind of people are going to be hurting you? People that you live near. Whatever neighborhood you live in, those are the people. If they look like you, those are the people that are robbing you at 2 o'clock in the morning. God has people that look like Paul trying to kill Paul. He takes a Gentile and rescues his Jewish servant. This man, this Roman, is under the government of God. Now you may say, am I saying that this Roman centurion, this Roman commander is converted? No, I I would bet money he's not converted. Here's what we need to know as Christian people. And I say it all the time. Broad is the road, many are on it. Narrow is the road, few are on it. Well, oh, 
that means God's only governing this little bitty group over here on the narrow road and the, the big old massive number on the big old broad road, I guess they're off running on the, the, their own show. Oh, no, no, no. No. This centurion, I'm sure, didn't say something like this. I'm a servant of God and I'm going to save God's servant, my fellow brother. I'm sure he didn't say that. What did this man say? I'm a military man. If I don't keep the peace, I'm a dead man. <laughs> God governed that. Sometimes you hear Christians, which are silly, they speak against like the laws of the state. Our government, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. No, 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 no. That's sedition. That's being a rabble rouser. No. So well, you say, well, it's a pagan government. Yep. God governed this pagan military man to preserve the life of his gospel servant. Because there were, there were rules. These pagans had rules. You can't murder people unless it's us murdering you. And you can't start a riot. Those are good laws. Unbelief does not restrain our God from governing the unbeliever. We don't think that. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar learned in, in Daniel chapter 4 after his humbling? It was a lesson in the providence of God. The sovereign providence of God. Nebuchadnezzar says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no one can counsel God. No one can thwart his hand. And what? God does what he wants to every person on the planet, including this man. He sends an unbeliever to rescue his servant from other unbelievers. And what's the application of that? Again, because I know that many of us live anxious lives. It's a fearful, we live in... It's fearful to live. Even as believers, we look around and we look for answers for all of our problems. And here's one of the problems is we're forgetting God in this. We beat ourselves senseless trying to figure out the answer to our problem. Someone's really sick. How, how will this person get healed? We're going to run here. We're going to run there. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. What happens when you can't figure it out? You just, you can't figure it out. Or you have no power. What? This is teaching us that more often than not, when God sends us a rescuer, we will not even be looking in that direction. It's not going to be what we, we expected. Remember, who is the person that let Israel go from Babylonian uh, captivity and even rebuilt the temple? Cyrus, a pagan Persian king, and God calls him my what? My Mashiach, my anointed. He calls him my shepherd. He calls Nebuchadnezzar my, my servant. God tells this Roman, go save my, my gospel servant right now. <laughs> Beloved, we don't have to figure everything out. Everything and everyone is under the control of our God. If God wants to rescue us, if God wants to preserve us, he's not limited. And then I'll say for just five minutes, when we see the, the sovereign government of God writ large, but then you see the Apostle Paul, and this is, read, read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, uh, uh, paragraph 1 through 8, that's on the eternal decree. This is sometimes where Calvinists slip into hyper-Calvinism and they don't know what they're talking about. Read chapter 3 on eternal decree. 
Then read chapter 5, paragraphs 1 through 7, on providence, ordinary government. He has, we just read it. He has secondary causes, real ones. When I eat a lot of weight, food, I get back up to the 200s. When I drink my kale smoothies, I get back to 150. Who's, who's eating the, the, who's eating the uh, pizza? And, and the, it's me. <laughs> real secondary causes under the government of God. What do I mean by that with this passage? God is preserving the life of his servant, but he's going to use his servant. God is in us both to will and to work. God will bring what he started in us to the day of completion, and we're active in that business. Why do I say that? The Apostle Paul is about to be uh, interrogated by scourging, and scourging would often kill you. They're going to whip you with a whip with glass and metal in the whip. It would kill you. And Paul says, is it lawful for you to do this to me? I'm a Roman uh, uh, citizen. What's he say? He uses graced wisdom to not get killed. Beloved, it is not more Christ-like and biblical to court martyrdom. It's actually a sin. It's against the sixth commandment. Read how we understand the positive duty of the sixth commandment is to lawfully preserve your life. Sometimes Christians are less shrewd than the unbeliever. I said sometimes God puts us in harm's way. Yes, but if God gives us a brain and he says you can preserve your life in this situation, then you use your brain if it's lawful. Paul uses his citizenship, a pagan citizenship. Christians, well-meaning Christians fall into this. Well, it's a pagan government. I had someone call me one time, what's that earned income credit when you make below a certain amount? He said, well, it's a pagan government and earned income credit and blah, 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 blah. And should I take it? I said, well, when I had no money, I used to take mine. He said, well, I don't know if I should take mine. I have a friend at church that says it's a pagan government. Don't take it. I said, send it to me. (laughs) Beloved, we can use lawful laws even if they're pagan lawful laws. If, there's a, if you can use a, a, a law in our citizenship that will preserve your life or the life of your children lawfully, then use it. It's not a sign of no faith. Paul did it. And then the second thing that we see is him being active in it. He uses shrewdness. Remember, he, they, the Jews have just wanted to kill him. He's back in front of the Sanhedrin. As he's preaching Christ to them, he looks around and he says, I already know what, who I'm in front of. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. It consists of, of uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees ran the temple. Pharisees ran the, 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 uh, uh, the synagogue. Uh, Sadducee means righteous one. Pharisees means separate one. They're both legalists. And he knows that there's theological differences among them. So what's he going to do? This is graced shrewdness. This is graced wisdom. He says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of Pharisees. Why does he do that? Well, number one, he says, I'm on trial because I believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So he tells the truth. He's not lying. But he used grace, wisdom. Why? Because he's eliciting, he's trying to elicit sympathy with the other Pharisees. Proper sympathy. He says, essentially, I'm one of you. I I am a Pharisee. I'm raised like you. Beloved, like people tend to like people. This is why when people send missionaries to a foreign land, the the foreign missionary is praying, begging God to raise up nationals. 
Because people like to look at people that look like them and sound like them. He's trying to elicit proper sympathy. And the other thing he's trying to do is to show the Pharisees that their rejection of Jesus being raised from the dead is against their principles. So he's trying to correct the erroneous Pharisees. And the the third thing that he's trying to do, obviously, is to he's trying to make a break in the religious solidarity of the Pharisee and the Sadducee against him proclaiming Christ. This is a kind of a divide and conquer thing. Then you say, well, is that legitimate? Yes, it is legitimate. He's not sinned by this. This This again is where God has given us wisdom, graced wisdom. He takes their focus off of him. Like we, there, these two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated one another. The only time they got together was when they wanted to kill Christ and kill those who loved Jesus. And so what does he say? Hey, you guys really are not on board with one another. <laughs> they take their focus off of him. One group says, I don't know if he's that, that bad. And they're, they're off to the races. And what happens? He is preserved. It's still under the government of God. Beloved, we're active. So this, this is a call to live quorum Deo before the face of God, to live practicing the, the presence of Jesus Christ, knowing that he's governing everything. But then there's a, 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 a minister, professor, Dr. Krabendon. He used to say this, run as fast as you can, as far as you can, and as furiously as you can. Yes, God is sovereign. But he's given you a brain. He's given you wisdom. He's given you opportunities. He's given you a body. You use everything. 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 To advance the cause of Christ. To run as fast, as far, and as furiously. To give Christ, to pour Christ, and to more and more and more and more. It's all under the government of God. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.